Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Josh Galecki. And today, we're talking about Baldur's Gate, developed by BioWare and published in 1998 by Interplay Entertainment. It later received a remaster called the Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition, which was released in November 2012, which is the one I played, and we'll be talking spoilers, so heads up if you're sensitive to that. Uh, so, I think there's several reasons why we're playing this game, Josh. One is I have an immense amount of nostalgia for it, having played the original iteration back in eh, right around the turn of the millennium. And also, Baldur's Gate 3, it's coming out in August. Time to slam down 100 plus hours of RPGs in preparation, right? <laughs> <laughs> Me and Brian are planning to run through all three Baldur's Gates this year, 2023. And also, <laughs> 2023 marks the 25th year anniversary of this game's release. Heck yeah. Um, You know, a great game deserves a a momentous occasion. I think this is probably the most planned programming we've ever done for this show. I think we're (laughs) notoriously close to the chest with whatever the hell we're going to play next. But um, you heard it here first. We're going to play some Baldur's Gates. And uh, there's no better place to start than the start. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a a seminal work, a... uh, Weirdly enough, the second game ever from Bioware and the first like major release that they really ever had. Um, they had a team that they brought on for this in, in Bioware that was mostly folks that had never made a game before, which is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. I think I read somewhere there were 60 people in the studio uh, like that were had never released a game before. And that was the majority, if not the entirety of the studio. Yeah, I, I, I find that so interesting because um, I, I was reading a bit more into that like like you had. I think there's so much interesting backstory with Bioware. I just kind of had to dig into it a bit more. Um, I guess maybe we should start with the founding of the company because it also is an interesting story. Um, practicing medical doctors, um, Ray uh, Zika, Greg Zestjuk, and Augustine Yip, alongside a few other uh, folks, Trent Oster, Brent Oster, and Marcel Zestjuk, founded the company in uh back in 1995 so they had a a stealth period i suppose before they released um uh their first game shattered steel and then went on to do Baldur's gate but you know medical doctors turned game developers is definitely not a story you hear all the time (laughs) you know the uh bioware title makes a lot more sense now like obviously oh we were doctors biology we know something about that I was thinking that this could be like, um, you know, if the video game thing doesn't work out, we could just do medical device software or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Keyway's a little more rigorous. Well, hey, you know, you got to play to your strengths. Um, An interesting GDC interview I had, um, one of the founders quoted saying, "Uh, we had a lot of creativity and in the field of medicine, creativity is not often a preferred trait. (laughs) 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 So they needed an outlet for their creativity and therefore decided to go into games. (laughs) Well, one way to do it. Indeed. So I, uh, I, you know, uh, as we mentioned in the start, this is a a game that was developed by a relatively inexperienced team, but also an incredibly ambitious project. You know, they um, managed after their very first uh, title, which was a mech game, to secure the license through Interplay with TSR to produce a Dungeons and Dragons game. And that turned into Baldur's Gate. Um, But before they even had the IP, they had this engine in development, the Infinity Engine. Um, which was used for so, so many things over the years. Um, you know, we can name off a few of our personal favorite games, say your Planescape Torments and things like that, um, that 
were developed in it, but originally it was developed as an MMO engine, and then it was pivoted into what it became for Baldur's Gate. And you got to think, too, like, what was Ultima Online 95 or something? So this would have been MMOs before World of Warcraft was started development or anything. Like, maybe EverQuest was the big one back then. Maybe not in 97, 98 when they were making this. Yeah, that's true. They were they were kind of in that nascent period where, um, you know, RPGs were very specific, very niche. And to be frank, like, they weren't really... Um, the place to be at the time like rpgs were sort of uh their their star was fading and i really think Baldur's gate seems to have had a hand in turning that whole thing around um sort of revitalizing the crpg genre uh through Baldur's gate itself and the rest of the ball spawn saga you know Baldur's gate 2 and throne of ball oh yeah i mean there had been earlier rp or crpgs like ultima and wizardry uh but they kind of like suffered a um a kind of a dearth, a kind of a, I don't know, nobody wanted to make any CRPGs. Um, but then I think it was 97 Diablo came out. That'd be another good game to cast on. Hell 98 yeah. was Baldur's Gate and uh, 99 was Planescape Torment. Um, and Diablo went, you know, uh, bonkers, but they kind of launched its own action RPG genre. Whereas uh, Planescape Torment and Baldur's Gate really revitalized CRPG as a genre. And I know that's a one that you and me have both really enjoyed when we were youths. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were huge Diablo 2 folks um, back in the day. Uh, you introduced that to me, you and your brother. And uh, yeah, I had a fantastic time playing that game. As you said, that'd be a fun game to revisit. But I find it entertaining that, um, you know, given the st- uh, place in the industry that this game was and being, you know, a relative unknown producing it, they said the worldwide sales goal was 200,000 units. Um, and they said that would justify work on a sequel. So that was the bar they were looking to surpass. Obviously, they, <laughs> they crushed it. <laughs> they mm-hmm. they flew over that bar. And I think a big reason, one of the uh, big reasons that helped them out is they did get that D&D license. Um, I feel like uh, Dungeons and Dragons had been kind of experiencing this kind of underground sort of thing. It was bigger in the 80s, but then, you know, satanic panic and all that. Um, so kind of had some cult- counter-cultural cred at that point, too. Um, but then there'd be a lot of kind of like people who are interested, like... Uh, it was uh, kind of a something you could hang your sign around was like, we're going to be D&D now. And since they had that license there, I, I do believe that kind of like helped with the advertising, helped people get familiar that this game does exist and it's out there. And it helped people uh, who knew the systems already kind of uh, get familiar with the game much more quickly. Yeah, I mean, for myself, um, I was introduced to it through my cousin Mike, and I don't believe he had like a D&D reason for becoming familiar with it. I don't exactly know how it came to him, but it came to me through him. And um, I, I, you know, I caught on immediately. I know you and I had done, I think it was a second edition even, D&D campaign for like literally a couple sessions with some friends back in like middle school. But that was really my only exposure up until that point. <laughs> yep, I was a dungeon master way back when, so... I remember, like, just pouring (laughs) over the rule books for this. Yeah, and, you know, it's, boy, it's worth mentioning that this is not an easy rule set. Um, (laughs) You know, I don't think I understood it at the time of my initial playthrough of Baldur's Gate, but, um, you know, over time, you sort of get get it through osmosis in, in this game. And I really think the Enhanced Edition did a lot to sort of maybe not streamline it, but um, make it a little more apparent what was going on with things like 
Thacko and um, armor class and all of the various dice rolls that need to happen, saving throws, what have you. It's um, mm-hmm. it's not an easy thing to wrap your head around for a first-time player. And I think the reason more folks probably haven't played this game, given its place in the industry and how influential it is, is because of how impenetrable that rule set is. <laughs> I mean, I agree. It's definitely a rule set that has been improved on by i think every single edition that's come out since second edition uh but at the same time there's other uh successful games that have been based on the rule set Hmm. um i i myself had some problems getting into Baldur's gate which we'll get into later on but um i don't think it was because of the rule set for me Hmm. but then again like these used to be oh what am i gonna i have a four hours to kill on a weekend because I'm a kid and kids right. just have free time. I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'll go read the Dungeon Master's Guide for a while. I don't know. Now, I, I have distinct memories of like the the point in time during which I was playing this game, and it was a summer vacation game for me. I remember distinctly going uh, to Caddy over the summer and then coming home and just playing Baldur's Gate uh, basically the rest of my day. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, punching out a little early after my first loop just to go back and, and play more Baldur's Gate instead of, uh, sticking around to make more cash because who needs cash when you have Baldur's Gate, man, honestly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting when you're like, uh, I mean, video games provide so much, so many hours of entertainment per dollar compared to like uh, going out to see a movie or something like that. And believe me, that was a going concern back then. Oh, for sure. Um, but, you know, we mentioned a little bit about the uh, enhanced edition versus the original. I think I, we, we should uh, just get this up out on Front Street that this game did have a very uh, uh, large and important remaster that came out in... 2012 as i mentioned up top and it was done by a studio called beamdog who have remastered kind of all of these infinity engine games over the last few years and uh, it was actually done and beamdog was founded rather by a former bioware co-founder trent oster and uh, a lead programmer there uh, cameron topher so they uh, did Baldur's Gate, obviously, first, given it was the flagship, and added some NPCs, added uh, some DLC, the Black Pits, which I did not play, some dif- difficulty options and quality of life things, but also yielded a ton of hilarious and entertaining stories about the process of remastering the game. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, things like source code lost in a flood, so, you know, we need to re- reverse engineer most of the the source code and things <laughs> like that. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you as a uh, working software engineer that trying to look at source code of something you wrote a year ago is difficult. Um, <laughs> trying to like figure out something you wrote, I don't know, the, the extended edition came out in 2012. Yeah. So that's like 14 years, 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> that is an achievement. Exactly. An achievement. And even these are the guys that were there for that, some of that original coding, which I'm sure helped. But at the same time, like... Um, there's one particularly hilarious example of them trying to like up the texture on a cobblestone street. And they were like, wait a minute, this is just a close up picture of coffee beans. <laughs> we can't <laughs> use this. <laughs> this might've worked on, uh, um, 640 by CRT 860. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it does not work on <laughs> HD. So they had to redo a lot of work too. Um, 
which is always, uh, you know, it, it adds to the the workload. But at the end of the day, I think they did a really nice job. Um, and they added um, some content that I don't necessarily always feels like it's in step with the original. But, you know, uh, it's, as you said, literally a decade and a half later. So I guess that's to be expected. Uh, as someone who's only played the enhanced edition, I've gone back and seen screenshots of the original, and I am glad I played the enhanced edition. <laughs> yeah, that, that window is real small, and the ability to, you know, get a little bit more on the screen, zoom in and out. Um, the Boy, the looting mechanic is worth the enhanced edition alone. Um, the looting in the old one was very ponderous. Um, and also, if you hold tab, you can see all of the clickable objects in a room, which kind of ruins some of the pixel hunting treasures that you could find. But also, it's worth it. <laughs> was anything really ruined by the pixel hunting? No, no. That was, uh, I think that was literally just like a, uh, more of an Easter egg than a, a feature, to be frank. Having come to this game so lately... Uh, there is a wide community out there that loves this game, mods this game, and there's kind of like agreed upon things. There's hidden stashes that are, I don't know, maybe eight by four pixels wide <laughs> on a whatever the resolution we were playing at, at 1600 or so wide on the screen. Uh, so these are tiny little sections of the screen that stash like this crazy good armor. And... <laughs> You're talking about Ankeg armor in Nashville, of course. <laughs> yeah, Ankeg armor. And there are some other things too, like swords and magic spells and things like that. But I almost feel like this stuff was put in there to drive sales of strategy guides back then. Because for the kids today who are listening and weren't born in, are born in the 80s and 90s, there used to be strategy guides you could buy for games, books that would tell you where all these little secrets were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very true. And uh, speaking of guides and, and paper material that would you, you would use while playing a game, uh, this game, I distinctly remember, came with a very nice spiral bound rule book, um, which was in the upwards of 100 pages or at least 80 or so. Um, and I and, and of course had a, a foldable map that that was packed in as well, um, as all mm -hmm. the best RPGs always did. And boy, I uh, I miss that. Like, if, if I could get a digital copy <laughs> and then like a few days later they'd mail me a cloth map or something like that, I would pay for that shit every time. Um. <laughs> well, you know, I think a lot of these like collector's editions, if you pay $200 for a game instead of 60 you get a lot of these kind of physical artifacts and things like that. But it used to just be standard with the game. And I think that's something that gets lost with the digital translation is um, companies no longer look to stand out by inclu including swag in their games. Yeah, there's something to be said for the swag. Swag is swagger. <laughs> but maybe we should delve into the actual adventure that you embark on in Baldur's Gate. So Baldur's Gate focuses on uh, your player-made character, uh, uh, the Ward of Garion, who travels across the Sword Coast region of the Forgotten Realms world of Faerun, alongside a party of companions. Um, you get to sort of choose all of the normal things you would choose during a D&D character creation, and then you're uh, kind of plunged into the world um, and set off kind of aimlessly. Eventually, you end up investigating an iron crisis and uh, trying to... Um, <laughs> prevent a war between Baldur's Gate and its regional neighbor, Am, 
and you uncover sort of the machinations of the game's true villain, Saravak, in the process, uh, who ends up killing your your mentor in the opening scene of the game. As I said, we're going full spoilers here, so um, be warned. <laughs> so you will know about the opening scene of the game here. <laughs> But you'll know, but you'll know about a lot more than that after this discussion. <laughs> mm-hmm. This was probably one of the earlier CRPGs that really embraced that exploration aspect of uh, being able to uh, be a computer or try to rather emulate the tabletop setting. Uh, because, you know, when you're a, in a D&D thing, the limit to what you can do is what the dungeon master says you can do, um, rather than like... Uh, you're in a roguelike dungeon where you can just be in the dungeon. You can't go out and go farming or something like that. Uh, so this game, I think, was trying to emulate that by having a lot of varied characters and experiences. Uh, I think some of them uh, even tried to go into almost a whimsical sort of tone, um, but mm-hmm. definitely trying to keep things varied in what you'd uh, discover along the way. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's a very important to point out that you are literally starting at level one um most games i feel don't put you in the shoes that this game puts you in which is literally a dirt farmer you know you are fresh off the uh off the uh the training grounds as it is as a level <laughs> one mage or fighter or whatever you are and you you will take this character throughout the the Ballsman series you know the Baldur's gates one two and its expansions from childhood to godhood if you play the whole thing uh, and i find that really compelling um it's not often that you see something like this fully, uh, you know, the full spectrum of development like this. And I also think it's it's really interesting that this whole game is kind of a low-level campaign. You know, at the very end of Baldur's Gate 1, you're not surpassing level, you know, 7 to 9, depending on your class. And so you never really get to the point where you're just stomping anything that gets in your way. You still have very real limitations on you, which I, I also think is unique to this game yeah dungeons and dragons sort of has a level system going from level one to 20 level one is you know your complete novice rookie kind of character um and then once you get to like level 10 then you're kind of like taking on kingdoms or so solving the fate of kingdoms and then when you get to like the higher levels to uh like 18 or 19 or 20 you are actually just fighting gods here and there so it's it uh, is in the DNA of the system that you go from nothing to, you know, omnipotence to uh, uh, deity. Yeah, and, and this game really does play in exactly that sort of mid-level path by the end that you were talking about. You know, I think by the end of this game, you're in sort of a high fantasy conspiracy mystery game plus economic thriller sort of working within the politics of a a kingdom and a region um, which is very as you said fitting for the levels that you're working in Um, it's really funny because like if i were to explain the plot of this game beat by beat it sounds kind of like star wars episode one we're talking about like trade federations and fucking with people's (laughs) economies to start a war and ironically much like that property it's actually interesting if you dig into it although completely unnecessary for what's on the screen which is to say lightsabers or, you know, spells and swords. <laughs> you know, one thing this game did really good for the time were those visual effects. Um, taking a look at all the kind of like lighting and um, the different graphical elements to the spells, it was really impressive for 98. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I, I don't have a great memory for like what else was contemporary to this, and I did play it a couple years after it came out. 
I, I think it still holds up today. Like it's sort of a painterly quality of how the, uh, all the textures look and the enhanced edition, you know, it, it's obviously been retouched a bit, but it feels true to the original, uh, to me, at least as someone who played that it, fe- it, it looks like I remember it looking, which is to say it obviously looks better. One of the interesting choices they made was that they did not use a tile system in the game. Rather, obstacles were placed more by hand and collision boundaries defied more by hand, which took a lot of effort for a game with the scope of Baldur's Gate. Um, but I think, you know, Planescape Torment did the, sort of the same thing. Like, you go into a city and it doesn't feel like you're stuck on a grid because things aren't on a grid. Mm. Yeah, it's true. Everything feels pretty organic and nothing is, uh, it doesn't feel artificial. It feels well-designed and constructed and it, I mean, not necessarily realistic because you're obviously looking from this third person or, you know, top-down isometric view, but it does feel um, cohesive. And uh, I think that sort of plays into how this whole game is constructed. You mentioned above how important the D&D aspect to it, and I feel like it's almost more of a D&D simulator than it is a, a classical you know, RPG like, like you would think. There's everything in it from a D&D perspective is modeled down to a very fine level, and you don't really see this type of attempt at a one-to-one anymore. Most folks will try and sand off the edges a bit more in, in a modern context, mm-hmm. you know? We mentioned before that second edition D&D was a bit more fiddly than (laughs) the later editions are. Uh, But yeah, there's actually this kind of like interesting give and take between D&D and video games. Uh, Because D&D was so popular, video games tried to emulate them. And then in the 2000s, Wizards of the Coast was like, oh shit, video games. Those guys are making so much money. Let's try to make our game like them. So (laughs) D&D 4th edition especially took a lot of influences from video games. But then for the 5th edition, they went back to like, hey, let's go back to what makes us unique. Yeah, and to that point, like uh, I know we touched on it earlier, but Forgotten Realms is is kind of the main setting here, uh, the world of Faerun and the Sword Coast, and I think that really adds a lot to this because it gives you a ton of stuff to draw on. I think at the time of the release of this game, there were about 90 novels set in that universe already, um, and there's over 100, obviously, by now, um, which is to say there's just a ton of things that you can draw upon and you know, political factions, characters, lore, pantheons, etc. Um, for example, you get uh, the Flaming Fist, um, the uh, sort of parochial law enforcement chuds of the uh, Baldur's Gate <laughs> area, and you get Drizdo Erden uh, making a, an appearance in Elminster, the you know plains walking wizard who's obviously you know millions of levels ahead of you, but sort of sees you as this important character with a destiny that he wants to keep tabs on. Uh, and even just if you click into the items and see the lore on them, there's references to all kinds of interesting stuff in the Forgotten Realms universe. It's it's more it's it's punching above its weight class in terms of like what it's bringing to the table from a lore perspective. Well, uh, was Planescape in Forgotten Realms? I think it, yeah. had, it was. Okay, I feel like Forgotten Realms is almost like one of the more generic D and D settings. I mean, Planescape <laughs> had maybe was exploring the cooler parts of it, but like outside of Drizzt, I don't remember anything about the forgotten realms this is someone who used to read the books you know what i'm gonna actually i'm gonna recant a little bit i'm not sure if like planescape and forgotten realms are the same thing or if they're like a subset one's a subset of of another it might be that they are separate um because planescape i think is actually a setting forgotten realms is a setting and then like 
Um, there's like Spelljammer and stuff like that. There's, and, and I think those are all sort of separate affairs, if you will. But um, mm-hmm. to that end, um, you know, I, I don't know this stuff in and out, like you said, but I did read, as you said, a bunch of books back in the day. You know, I read the, the Drizzt books by R.A. Salvatore. Um, uh, you know, I think we all did. Uh, we were nerds of that age. Um, <laughs> and we had so much free time. I don't know what we did with all that free time. Yeah, I think this is this is basically like the um, the counterbalance to Dragonlance, right? Like there was Dragonlance on the one the one side, and then there's the Forgotten Realms on the other, <laughs> and they were sort of the DC and Marvel of the forgot or the fantasy nerd universe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then there was Lord of the Rings, which is I guess Shakespeare or something like that. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting that like there's you know th- this game plays into the the broader lore of the Forgotten Realms and um, all the stuff that this game references, aside from literally Drizzt, as you said, like I didn't understand or know very much of because I had only read that I don't know dozen or so books. Honestly, how did they make a dozen books about that guy? Because <laughs> he was popular. That's how. This is true. I mean, how this many Batmans have they made? This is true. <laughs> He's the Batman of the Forgotten Realms. <laughs> uh, minus the mansion and the billions. Um, but at any rate, um, if we're going to go into lore for a brief second, and if you'll indulge me, um, the precursor to the events in Baldur's Gate is uh, an event called the Time of Troubles, where all of the gods of the Forgotten Realms pantheon are sent down to the mortal realm. And as a result of that, the Lord of Murder, Bale, um, uh, had a bunch of kids with a bunch of mortals and created what are called the Ballspawn. Um, the Ballspawn, one of which is your player character. Uh, this will be important later. Did you get to that point in the story, Josh? I, I think I don't know if that was necessarily something you had discovered yet. Oh no, uh, spoiler alert for people listening to the cast, I did not complete chapter two in this game. Uh, <laughs> I put six hours into it, but eventually the frictions in the game were not, uh, they were too much for me to overcome. That's all right, because I've played it uh, enough times for both of us. So um. <laughs> There we go, we average out to a couple of playthroughs each. Exactly. <laughs> so to that end... Um, uh, you know, the, the lore of the game, it, it becomes important as you sort of continue on and get into the late game. But early on, I think it, it's more important just to sort of feel the characterization of the world. And as you mentioned, Josh, you're spending a lot of those early levels just sort of wandering around trying to figure out what the hell to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this game does tell you where to go. Um, but, you know, uh, spoiler alert, alert, we're talking about my troubles with the game here. Um, I was not always sure how to get to where I was supposed to go. Um, <laughs> the design of the game was such that uh, they had the overworld map where things were not like on a grid or anything, um, but they'd be placed kind of in general geographic location to each other. Like, oh, this is north of where you are, so you can go to here next. Um, and... I was not aware that the side of the map that I exited to get to this overworld map screen unlocked a different location (laughs) to go to. Uh, So I ended up taking a hard right at Albuquerque when I was trying to get (laughs) through the chapter two basic kind of stuff there and uh, ended up out in the wilderness for a while, very underleveled for the area I was supposed to be, and not sure what I was doing wrong. <laughs> I mean, well, obviously the thing you did wrong was not follow directions, Galecki. 
Come on. <laughs> you were a Boy Scout. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> My compass was busted. What can I say? <laughs> I guess so. I mean, it is kind of funny. And I think it's very indicative of like some of the lack of, um, uh, lack of, yeah, I guess, common sort of quality of life and guidance systems that maybe a more modern game might have. Uh, as you said, you know, it's it's a, the, the map is logically laid out, and if you exit to the east, you will find the next map to your east. But if you exit to the south, you're not going to find that map to the east, which is, in fact, where you're supposed to go. <laughs> so I think yeah. it would have been more obvious to me if you exited the town to the south and you showed up in the location to the south. It was like the go to the overworld map. Mm. Um and I went to the next available location, and like I saw the goal where I was supposed to go, but the only place I could go was kind of in that direction, but not quite. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to go here. And if it wasn't a grid, it would be obvious that, oh, well, this is not supposed to be here, but it was kind of looking like I, it might have been the way to go. Yeah, and I, I see where that could be confusing, because as you mentioned, there there it's not a straight grid here. Like, there is... There's semblances of a grid in certain portions of it. Like if you're following a road, the next logical place to the south is going to be along the road heading south. But there are Mm -hmm. places where like you'll exit to the east and you'll unlock a map to the southeast or the northeast. And, you know, it's it's slightly illogical in that way. Um, But to that end, like the game does, uh, you know, it it kicks you off. It it kicks you kind of out on your ass pretty early. You know, you're attacked on the road by the big bad Saravak. Your ward is killed. And he, the last thing he says is, go to the friendly arm in. I got two friends waiting for you there. They will figure out what the hell to do with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's kind of your only um, your only hope. And, uh, you know, once you wake up in the morning in the cold light of day after uh, a murder of your father figure has taken place, you get your annoying friend Imowen saying, all right, um, where are we going? And you're like, friendly arm in. She's like, okay, I think I know where that's at. And hopefully you can follow uh, the text of going to the east and then north to to get there. And then from there, I think it's a little easier. You know, I think it's it follows a bit more logically from that point on. It was actually the road between uh, Baragost and Nashkill that was my um, side wanderings uh, <laughs> where that got led off at. Because uh, I think up until that point you don't really have to realize which way you're going. Like you go to the East and you go to the next, like the next area is open and then it shows you like the friendly arm in to the North. So you go there and then it says, Hey, go to Baragos first and then go to Nashville. And that's all going through the kind of like the levels you've gone through already. So it never really asks you to learn the, uh, like you got to exit to the South. Yeah, it never asks you to do the orienteering until that point, um, mm-hmm. which I guess makes sense. You know, your 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 characters would have some knowledge of the outside world, and I do find it interesting that at certain points they will just put new things on your overworld map because a character in your party will have knowledge of them. I'm thinking of like character quests that say um, uh, Minsk will put the Knoll Fortress on your map when you recruit him into your party. Um, mm-hmm. and so you'll know how to, or you'll know where it is. So you can start to, you know, as, as you later found out, Josh head in that direction to sort of pathfind your way <laughs> there eventually. Um, and I think like, to be frank, like, I, I know that that was maybe a point of friction to you up front, but I think that's actually a really strong feature of the game. Uh, once you understand it, um, that being a huge caveat right there, you know, if it, it's, 
it can be very off-putting if you don't understand it. But once you do, kind of like wandering through the wilderness, it gives me the same vibes as like a Morrowind or something like that, you know? Like, you're not getting the quest marker on your map. You're getting take a left at the second fork after the tree and shit like that. And, <laughs> you know, like that's the stuff you don't see these days. And I think it's, um, it puts trust in the player. And I like that. Now, I think this game was rather focused on exploration to a degree that I was not expecting when I started to play. It's like I was, um, not playing the game as it was intended to be played. And once we talked you? about this later on, <laughs> I'm wait, wait. What can hold I on, say? hold on a second. Josh Kalecki playing a game in an unexpected or uh, unintended way? Unbelievable. I've never heard that of was that. I was a QA in the last, <laughs> in, a, in a past life. But yeah, like um, once we talked and I got like, oh, this is, you're meant to do this exploration sort of thing. It let me recalibrate. It let me kind of like figure out this is what I'm trying to do. This is what I've done wrong. I can go off and do that then. So that was a, a big turning point for me for what I'm going to call my second wind on this game. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And, you know, I'm glad that you you at least got the second wind that, that propelled you a little bit further. Um, but maybe before we go into a bit more about what happens a little later, let's talk about um, some of the uh, aspects of, you know, forming a party and adventuring forth, uh, if you will. Right from the start, as we mentioned, you're doing your sort of D&D character creation. You know, you get to choose your your class, your race, your kit um, in the Enhanced Edition, of course. Uh, that wasn't present in the, the original. Um, your stats, which have this handy re-roll button, allowing you to basically re-roll yourself into a god. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, your alignment. Uh, but once you've got all that down um, and you have a, um, you know, you have a, a character created, uh, very quickly, you're going to find yourself outclassed uh, unless you're, you know, very experienced uh, if you don't have a party to go along with you. Um, and the game points you towards some of your initial party members. You know, Imowin joins right off the bat. They point you towards Jahira and Khalid, who are um, uh, members of an order. Uh, I cannot re- remember the name of that right now. Um, the Harpers. Yes, the Harpers, who are sort of, you know, uh, a group of do-gooders, I suppose. And from there on, there's a bunch of other NPCs you can recruit. Some are good, some are evil, some are neutral. Um, tell me a little bit about what you did, Josh. Uh, what did you create? Who did you run across and recruit in your your brief journey? <laughs> um, I accepted all comers at all times. Uh, but basically, <laughs> yeah, I, I took Emma in with me. Um, oh, you know, we have the whole story about how I accidentally created a party of six people at the very beginning of the game, too. <laughs> Yeah, in the enhanced edition, they uh, in the place where you would normally say accept, create character, and start the game, they actually have a create party button. So Josh uh, created six player characters, and I guess you just chose one at the very end of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first pair, the first character you create is the story character. The rest are just along for the ride. Um, but yeah, f- a funny story aside. Yeah, I, uh, I took Imowen, then I took the two evil dudes who, the necromancer and the fighter thief. Oh, Jen and Montaron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then I took uh, uh, Jahara and Khalid and the friendly arm in, and then I got to Baragost, and I'm like, oh, do I want to take this bard? Do I want to take this? wild mage here um because i think i eventually passed on both of them and eventually made my way down to nashkill where i got my uh 
my buddy um, Boo, not Boo, Min- Minsk. 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 Yeah, and his Minsk hamster comes with Boo. You point, I punch. Yeah, and I had a there was a sun monk who I took initially because uh, I thought it would be cool. It looks like he shoots sun lasers in the enhanced edition, uh, but then at, p- reading online, he was not a very um, pull your own weight kind of guy. So I got rid of him eventually, and I feel like I had a good party at the end of it. Uh, I had myself as a ranger. Um, wasn't sure if I was good. I was thinking I was doing arrows. Um, but also had dual wield because you know Drizzt and all oh, yeah. that. You were going to be the uh, new Drizzt, of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, Forgotten Realms. What's the one thing I remember about it? But then I had Imowen, the thief. I had the cleric who is the statue from the carnival. Um, mm-hmm. Minsk and Delora, the mage caster person. Um, and I forget who my six was. Yeah, I uh, I rolled an evil party this time because I hadn't done that before. So I was an evil fighter. Um, mm-hmm. I I didn't take Xan or or Monteron at the at the start. Or I took. Well, it's because they suck. So you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I thought about going back for Monteron for a little bit, and then I was like, you know what, Imowen's not going to leave me. She's a good enough thief. We're just gonna stick with her for a bit. I eventually got um, uh, my. Uh, excellent fighter, Kagan, the dwarf. Uh, he's a badass. Uh, Shartiel. Oh, yeah. The uh, yeah, Kagan. I had Kagan. He's he's really good. I mean, how can you turn down nineteen Constitution, honestly? Um, and then uh, I had I had Shartiel, uh, mercenary fighter, Viconia, the Drow cleric, who I think is a dark horse, most important member of my party. <clears throat> Edwin, the incredibly douchey mage. Uh, and Imowen rounded it out. Yeah, so it was a, a interesting evil party for me this time around. And uh, honestly, having a, a really powerful evil fighter made the game super easy because uh, no qualms killing anyone, no qualms uh, or no problems killing anyone either because fighters in this game are quite good. And you know who to kill too, having played <laughs> the game before. Yeah, that I, I actually did. Um, I was a two-handed sword user and in the enhanced edition, there is a half-orc that hangs out at the friendly arm in with a uh, magical uh, claymore just kind of waiting for you uh, to have him join you if you're a certain level and I didn't have the level but I certainly killed him for his claymore uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you know this is one of those things is just like in the games like uh, your Morrowinds or your other you know games of this ilk if you know where to look for the important loot you can just beeline towards it and, and get yourself a nice leg up to start the game Oh, for sure. And I think that makes going through it on repeat playthroughs more fun and and enjoyable. Like, you know where these Easter eggs are, the tiny little uh, mm-hmm. armor stashes hidden in the wilderness. Uh, you know where the orc is with the super good claymore that, you know, you don't need the orc as much as you need the claymore. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I, I was fulfilling the orc role already. Um and, but <laughs> it is worth noting um, on party members in general that uh, this game uh, does, as tabletop D&D um, rules would dictate, split experience amongst all the party members. So you have an option, of course, to not take any party members and hyper-level your player character. Um, in fact, this is a perfectly viable strategy to roll a fighter mage thief and just level all of those up to uh, whatever level you can get to before the experience cap and have uh, a solo run. But... I generally find it more entertaining to have a party personally. I forgot you could multi-class twice as a fighter mage thief. Why not just do it all? (laughs) 
Exactly. So that, you know, in second edition, uh, as I understand it, uh, humans can dual class, which means they only choose one class at the start, but then you can choose another class at some point during your quest. And then the first class becomes inactive until you surpass it with your second class, which makes them basically hobbled for a certain amount of time. But um, after that point, you can raise as much as you want in the secondary class. Non-human races can choose multiple classes from the start and they level simultaneously, uh, which is an interesting dichotomy. And if that sounds complicated to you, it is. (laughs) It is. It very much is. Welcome to second edition D&D. You think about it like, what other games is like being a human versus being an elf such a unobvious idea of like what you're getting into, like what what paths you're blocking off just from doing that? Oh, yeah, totally. And that like that is spelled out if you like go to look at dual classing and multiclassing in your, you know, if you look at multiclassing in the character creation screen, it will spell that out for you. If you go to dual class your character as a human, you get a big flashy warning screen saying, hey, you're about to fuck your character over for about three hours. Are you cool with that? <laughs> um, and I think that's um, one, intimidating, but two, uh, an interesting choice, like you said. Um, it definitely doesn't pull punches in terms of like making sure that uh, you know it's following the rules of the, the source material faithfully, but also um, maybe sometimes to its detriment from an accessibility perspective. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I think this is, again, where the game did well uh, by hewing close closely to the source material. I think a lot of the audience that the game was shooting for, you know, with their initial target of uh, 200,000 units <laughs> sold worldwide, um, would be the type who would be like, oh, yeah, they got the multi-classing down just right. <laughs> you know, you're absolutely right. That would definitely be a selling point. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought one of the I thought the they had some very interesting characters in there. Like I liked Minx, even though I thought he was a little bit cartoonish. Oh um, yes. I have a lot of affection for Minsk because I first encountered him as like a 12 year old, uh, you know, preteen uh, nerd. And he was hilarious <laughs> to me. He's, he still is kind of hilarious, but he is uh, definitely, he's optimally experienced as a, as a kid. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Butt kicking for goodness. And, you know, nothing wrong with that. There's other characters in there that have, um, you know, he's more cartoonish than most of the NPCs. Like, I didn't have a problem with the. Uh, tone, so to speak, that the game was putting forth. Uh, but I did think one of the most really interesting things about the game was that your NPC party, they'll leave you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's a great point. You know, the alignment of yourself and your actions versus your party are uh, hugely important because, as you mentioned, you know, if you do enough evil things as a good character, your alignment will change and you'll fall. Um, and if you are toting around some party members that are aligned to good, uh, they will leave. Uh, they, you know, or if you just don't complete the quest that they, you know, join you on the contingency of completing, they will also leave. <laughs> yeah, know, they're like, buddy, you're not going to the Knoll Fortress. What am I doing hanging out with you? Yeah. Wait a minute. We're on the other side of the the Sword Coast from that. What 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 exactly are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Minsk is dumb, but he's not that dumb. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a really nice touch, though. It's like. Um, you're taking on a party member and you're taking on at least for the first 20 minutes you're with them, uh, some obligation with them as well. 
Yeah. And and most of those things, as you mentioned, can be resolved pretty quickly, and then you just have a party member. Um, they would expand on this greatly in Baldur's Gate 2, so I'm excited for you to, you to experience that. And I do feel like Baldur's Gate 1, as you mentioned, has a whimsical tone. Some of it's very cartoonish. And in a large part, I don't think it takes itself very seriously, which is intentional and entertaining. Um, Baldur's Gate 2 and, and Throne of Ball more so... Um, tend to take, you know, it increases the stakes, but also I feel like the tone grows up along with the player. It gets a little more serious. The character sort of side quests and things become a lot more involved in nature. Uh, You can really see them growing into the Bioware that you would start to see in things like Dragon Age and Mass Effect. Hmm. Oh, I forgot that Bioware did Dragon Age. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting lineage to trace through all of these, you know, uh, RPGs over the years it is it's a it's a venerable line and you know from 2007 on they were uh owned by ea i believe right um so you can kind of see the shift in tone and the shift in um a shift in how things were were done there but you know this is kind of the start of all of that You mentioned earlier that experience is shared amongst your party members, and this was not something I was aware of when I took schmucks like uh, Morgath and Zan or whatever they're. Yeah, Zan and Monteron, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, one of my biggest gripes with the game was the pace of leveling. Uh, and there was a lot that contributed to that. Um, but at the end of my six hours of playtime, I had two of my six characters at level two, and everybody else was level one. And that is an incredibly long time to spend on level one when level one means that you can't hit anything worth a dime and you more or less die in one hit when anything <laughs> decent attacks you. Yeah, that's that low-level campaign feel coming back for you. Um, you know, and, and, you know, being unfamiliar with the game, that that, that will be the experience the first time through. Um, I played, uh, you know, I played through the game on, on this playthrough much quicker because I knew where I was going, what I was doing. I'd say by six hours in, uh, I was through Chapter 4 probably. <laughs> <laughs> I believe so, it. I believe it. You know, this is kind of one of those things like, um, like like your Dark Souls and your other, you know, your FromSoft games uh, experience compresses uh, time sort of situation. And uh, you're absolutely right that if you're not knowing where to look, the equipment to get, the battles to fight, the battles to not fight, uh, you're going to spend a lot of time slamming your head against a wall and quick saving and reloading and combat that you are outclassed for. And, and I think a lot of that is specific to the second edition system too, or maybe not that system but like the level one to level two in D, you double your hit points in your survivability much bigger than the gap between two and three uh, so i f- i feel like if there was a little more generosity with how quickly you would advance to level two like i figured if i feel if i got to level two at the friendly arm and i might have finished this game hmm. so what you're saying is like if there was uh, maybe a more uh, modern, 
progression where, say, once you reach the friendly army and you were completing a quest, getting some, enough experience to level up, um, that would have improved uh, probably, you know, as you said, obviously your survivability, but also would have made the rest of wandering around the Sword Coast until you actually leveled up due to the, the game's rule set a lot more palatable. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of it was I always had a hard time understanding if I should be here or mm. not. Like, <laughs> am I getting destroyed by this guy because I'm bad at the tactics of this game? Or is it because I'm very underleveled compared to whatever this guy's doing? Um, and this would happen not just on weird side quests down the Sword Coast, but in the main quests as well. There'd be like the assassin at the Inn in Nashco, or um, <laughs> Mulhalani, or what's the guy's name in the, in the Deep in, in the, the Mines? Mine. Yeah, Mulaney, yeah, that's right. Mal- uh, who I, that was the... That was the last guy I could not beat before I said, okay, this is, I've had enough of this game here. <laughs> like, I'd say, it's... like, am I underleveled for him? But really, I've, I've been doing side quests and things, so I feel like he's overleveled. <laughs> I, it, you know what? It's funny you mentioned that uh, the assassin in Nashville, Josh, because I have a distinct memory that you just unlocked for me in this conversation of going into that inn and getting my ass kicked so many times that I remember remember exactly what he says when he uh, walks up to you and it's I got a blade with your name on it (laughs) (laughs) and then he would immediately just come up and uh, destroy my poor mage who had four hit points at the time Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I I, I totally understand where you're coming from it's it's not an easy game and it doesn't pull any punches And, and to your point it's it's also not cutting any corners with how it's doling out its rewards. Like you are earning every level that you get there. And while that is definitely something that's going to uh, cause, as you, as you have noted, a lot of friction, it's also something that once you surpass, you're like, huh, you know, that was cool that I made my way through that uh, literal corridor of swinging blades. That is the sword coast. (laughs) Don't call it the sword coast for nothing. Amen. And to that end, maybe we should talk a little bit about how combat actually plays out in the Sword Coast, or rather in Baldur's Gate. Um, I always liked that you were a ball spawn in this game because it neatly sidesteps the confusion about why a lawful good paladin or whatever you're playing is murdering the shit out of everyone they come across. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, murder follows you. You are literally the god of murder's son. So it it makes sense. Uh, To that end, combat features heavily in Baldur's Gate um, and largely it plays out uh, with dice rolls in the typical D&D uh, second edition fashion so you have your Thacko or two hit armor class zero uh, which uh, uh, I can explain if, if we want <laughs> <laughs> can you do it in 30 seconds or less alright Josh put 30 seconds on the clock Two-hit armor class zero is basically your character's hit rate. It's the number you need to roll to hit an armor class of zero. Counterintuitively, you want both the Thacko, the two-hit armor class zero, and the armor class of your character to be as low as possible. Uh, so to give a quick example, you, uh, you maybe have an armor class of, or a Thacko of 16 and an armor class of three. Um, your enemy, say, has a Thacko of 18 and an armor class of seven. This means you would need to roll a 16 minus 7, a.k.a. 9, to hit them, and they would need to roll an 18 minus 3, a.k.a. 15, to hit you on a d20. 
not too shabby. Yeah, it is not uh, intuitive at all. Um, you're trying to minimize the numbers of both of these primary stats for your character. So, you know, by the end of this game, you maybe have like a two hit armor class, uh, you know, a Thacko um, that is, you know, fairly low, maybe something in the like eight to 10 range if you're, you know, in, in a decent leveled character and your your armor class if you're a fighter is in like the negative four range something like that um it's it's weird <laughs> it's a weird system I think it's, a, I think it's a bad system uh it's counterintuitive as hell um but you know uh you can kind of ignore it completely if you want to and just continue to equip things that make the numbers go up in the enhanced edition and the, the little paper doll figure that the game gives you and you'll be fine much better that way. I've mentioned before that second edition D&D is a fiddly system, and I use that term in a very technical sense here. Um, <laughs> or at least when you're talking about board gamers and maybe tabletop gamers as well, fiddly refers to like, here's a game or a system where you have to roll a lot of dice or do a lot of things like this, um, which for board games and tabletop games can often be something that slows the game down, but when you have a computer that can do that all for you, then uh, Fiddly can even be a um, compliment and be like, this game has a lot of depth to it. I'm thinking of the game Gloomhaven, which I've never played the board game or the computer version game of it, but I've heard people love the computer version game of it because... The, the 19 or 20 decks that you have to shuffle and draw cards from in a specific order, you don't have to do that. The computer does it for you. So fiddliness can be taken advantage of by a computer game, and I think Baldur's Gate is a great example of how this can help out something like Thacko. Like, you play the Enhanced Edition, you don't have to understand the etymology of Thacko in order to make use of it. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really well observed. And I also think like it if you were trying to play Baldur's Gate, the module in a tabletop setting, it would take you years because um, the, any any single encounter in this game is going to take you an entire session. As you mentioned, Josh, you can um, you can abstract away all of the dice rolls, all of the math, all the calculation, all the everything that goes into one round of combat and that would be 15 20 minutes of tabletop time you know <laughs> <laughs> um it's just a, a lot different when it's done by a computer an automated dm rather than a human and i think that makes baldur's gate this really interesting sort of conglomeration of a tabletop game and a uh an rpg and i guess a fantasy novel all rolled into one um, but it's, it's kind of fascinating because you would never get through this much combat in, in a, a typical D and D setting in any reasonable amount of time. So it's, um, it, it has to focus on other things within its combat to make it continue to be interesting. Um, for example, there's a ton of micromanagement that you have to do with regards to say your potions and equipment, and you can reap or your repositioning. And, you know, what you're doing to buff your characters before you're opening um, and, and things of that nature. And I think all of that is to say this is one of those games where I found myself riding the pause and unpause button frequently. Um, and it just uh, goes to underline the fact that this game has a really incredible amount of tech, uh, tactical depth, but it's not something that necessarily is one-to-one -one with the tabletop experience in that regard. 
No, and for, you know, that's for better and for worse there, for sure. Um, but that is an interesting thing. You mentioned the uh, combat system. I call it real-time with pause. So you can pause it at any time to plan out the tactics and then unpause to execute them. And this isn't the first game that did that. I think Descent and Wastelands both had the system in there before. Um, but I definitely think it's the one that popularized um, it more than anything else. Like this idea that you could have a more tactical situation that doesn't have weird things that happen when you have like, you have two people on opposite ends of a room and one person runs over with their turn and passes off an item. And then that next person runs away with something like you don't have that weird stuff because everything resolves in real time, but you can still pause and be tactical about it. And uh, this whole like, almost genres that base themselves off of this. I'm thinking of Dungeon Siege in particular, but that's hardly the only one. Uh, but the idea being that here's almost a new genre of resolving things. It's not just turn-based, or it isn't turn-based. It isn't twitchy like um, the action RPGs of Diablo turned out to be. Um, but it's like the in-between of the two. Yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. Um, I think it is, you mentioned a point where it's real time with pause, and I think that's really well observed because they are technically modeling out turns in this game, and I think they're technically like six in-game seconds of time. So your fighter will have uh, 1.5 actions per turn. So that means they're attacking like roughly every four seconds or something like that um, from the, the Wait, start. Wait, hang on. Are you are you sure about that? That it's like every six games, six seconds of action is a one turn. I'm not positive that that's the exact amount of time, but it's something in that it, it's. Mo I, I believe it's modeled in that way. It's a certain amount of seconds equal a turn, and therefore, that's how often things are happening in game time. I'm not sure it's six okay. seconds. It might be something. It might be something similar to that. But yeah. That's, well, even so. I felt like a lot of times my people would be swinging at air. They'd just be going, woo, 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 <laughs> constantly. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? My Thacko's better than this. I know it is. This guy's a mage. He doesn't have any armor. Why am I missing so much? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's, you're absolutely right. And I find it really funny because there's so many games in this, um, this particular cohort that, that does this where, like, to hit is a factor of your combat efficiency. Like I'm thinking of Morrowind, you find yourself hacking at air a lot. Uh, in Diablo 2, you find yourself hacking at air a lot. In, of course, Baldur's Gate, you find yourself hacking at air a lot. Um, all of these games <laughs> came out within a few years of each other. And I think at some point, everyone realized this is horseshit. And so um, Oblivion <laughs> came along and decided to say, you know what, we're throwing that out. If it looks like it hits, it hits. And uh, the efficacy is then based on um, something else behind the scenes, which I guess is probably a better way to do things. Um, I'm thinking even like Deus Ex, like you could line your cursor up exactly on some dude's head, fire the pistol, and it goes wide right, and all of a sudden everyone's shooting at your ass. <laughs> well, it sounds like this game went even farther. It's not that any single attack had a low chance to hit, and you just swing at the air. It's like you miss your one swing and then as an idle animation it just has you throwing more swings out there <laughs> that might actually be the case I, I have no idea how the animations actually match up with what's happening behind the scenes um i i could be entirely wrong about this uh don't don't take what i'm saying for fact here i'm not a um 
a technical master of the Baldur's Gate, uh, just a master of uh, beating a game. <laughs> you mean you didn't re- remaster the entire game for the 2024 Ultra Enhanced Edition? I left that up to my good friend Topher. Uh, he, he can take that <laughs> one for me. <laughs> um, but to that end, um, I do feel like there is also a lot of, uh, in the higher difficulties, especially if you're playing on core or above, um, a lot of... Um, a lot of random randomness and dice rolls that were built into this that also made me find myself uh, doing some quick saving and quick loading more often than I would have liked. There's some save scumming in action here. Now, this is an interesting thing I wanted to talk about is this kind of uh, old school quick save, quick load sort of thing that goes on there. I know there's been we've seen this in other games like Deus Ex uh, was an aforementioned one. Uh, there's another one, Arcanum, that we're both going thing. through a little bit yeah. right now um and that might be a cast in a future date but like the quick save and quick load was kind of like a thing in the late 90s early aughts uh that it really isn't anymore and i don't know i mean like, i i remember myself doing that with dishonored and that was um early tens yeah Okay, uh, yeah, maybe not, maybe past the early aughts and whatnot, but I feel it's not something you see so much these days. Like, um, I'm thinking of Doom, uh, Doom Eternal that we played for the podcast, where you are very much more like you have a sa- auto save point before this big fight, but it's not like you can get almost to the end of the si- the the fight and do a quick save. And reload it anywhere. You can't do it in this game either. You can't quick save in combat, I don't think. No, um, but you can game it so that you can break combat if there's a specific part that you want to handle. You know, you can you can pull enemies. You know, there there are ways around uh, saves coming, or there, there are ways around not being able to saves come. I guess. <laughs> yeah, just because you can't like quick load until you get that critical hit doesn't mean like I don't know. It's an interesting philosophy to allow the quick save. Mm-hmm. I guess is what I want to talk about here. Yeah, for a game that is uh, so otherwise focused on um, ensuring sort of the fidelity of the tabletop experience and making sure you're living with your your actions, um, it is surprising that uh, they, one, focus so much on combat, whereas a tabletop experience does not, and two, that they would allow for something like save scumming. And I think one goes in hand with the other because there is a preposterous amount of combat in this game for any normal tabletop campaign, which <laughs> <laughs> which I think goes hand in hand as to why you're allowed to do this quick save, quick load thing. Because every time you're in combat, obviously, you're taking your life into your hands, right? And if your PC dies, that's the end. Um, this game, you, you can't play Baldur's Gate as a roguelike. I'm sure there are Iron Man runs out there, but it is probably not a very fun way to play the game for a normal person. And so I think that's mm-hmm. kind of why the, the quick save, quick load exists, personally. No, I hear you. I hear you. I'm just thinking, like, as opposed to, like, a auto save that takes you back to the beginning of the area you're in. Although for some dungeon areas, like the Null Fortress, uh, you know, that, would not, be a that long... was a troublesome thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But just, like... In terms of checkpointing, allow the player to checkpoint at any point before doing risky things like thieving, let's say, as opposed to the, like, you can't quick save in combat, but, you know, I can um, quick save before I try to pickpocket anything and everyone in the game. And it's kind of like, um, I don't know, it's like 
I feel it's a consequence of the only way they can deal with a failed pickpocket attempt is they have everyone attack you. Like, there's no... It's a very combat-focused thing. There's no nuance that you might get out of a tabletop game uh, where you can have consequences besides murder. I mean, you are the bail spawn, you know, son, lord, murder, <laughs> all that stuff. <laughs> you know, all so. that. It's in the blood. <laughs> it's in the blood, yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, um, about um, combat and, and quick saves and the fact that like there are areas where you can obviously very quickly fail and find yourself dead, and, and uh, the Null Fortress is probably one of the more tame aspects of that. There are maps where there are greater basilisks wandering around, and the first thing they try and do is petrify you, and usually your lead character, which for me was my player character, was the one targeted. And if they hit you with that, it's game over. It's just, you know, your PC dies, you're done. So... Like, to that end, like, if there is that on the table, you kind of have to have an option for very quickly getting the player back in the saddle, right? I agree with you um, about that, but I almost think that's a... Trying to be too faithful to the source material, uh, trying to have these, like, oh, you're in an area with greater basilisks, be aware. But then when you have the quick save, um, you do not get the intended experience that they're looking for. Yeah, I, I would agree that there's like a tonal and I guess diegetic mismatch between what they're saying with the idea that you have a enemy that can immediately petrify and destroy your character and then also the idea that you can just quick save and quick load. <laughs> so. Actually, let's talk about that for a minute. You can resurrect literally every other person in the party besides yourself. Right. It's like your your player character is the only person who does not have the ability to um, be resurrected, which um, like I get like if it is your story at the end of the day, the ball spawn. And if he is gone, he or she is gone. Um, the party disbands effectively. There's no one coming back for the ball spawn, apparently, <laughs> despite how not charismatic they may be. <laughs> not even Imowen. You know, that would be interesting if like... Um, if if your character was able to be disabled like that and the only thing you could do is control Imowen to get them resurrected, like everyone else disappears until Imowen resurrects your PC or something like that, that would be an interesting way to handle that. <laughs> well, I think of a uh, torment that came out the next year, like Mort drags your dead body back to the temple. Well, the idea behind that game is different though. Like, and we honestly, we should, we, we should just play Planescape again and actually talk about it. We, for uh, for the audience, uh, Josh and I did a unrecorded video game book club on Planescape before we started the podcast, and uh, that discussion went late into the night. Um, <laughs> so it's probably worth a revisit. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's where I'm going to fall on that. Is it's just trying to go for a different thing with the idea of a giant death, rebirth, resurrection, etc. Yeah, and Torment definitely had its own uh, very unique and interesting way to deal with player character death. Uh, diegetic would be mm. the word I think that could be used there, which is interesting. One might say that. One might. One one Brian Skirsha might have said that. <laughs> <laughs> 
so uh, speaking of Planescape Torment and uh, you know all of the uh, various other uh, Infinity Engine games, I think it's worth mentioning that this game not only spawned obviously a sequel in Baldur's Gate 2 and its expansion Throne of Ball, and of course the expansion to this own game, uh, Tales of the Sword Coast, which is bundled in with the enhanced edition that we both played, but also Planescape Torment, um, which uh, is you know taking place in that Planescape universe, an excellent game in its own right, and uh, also entirely different in that it's not combat focused and more on the dialogue side of things. Uh, what is combat focused is Icewind Dale, which I also believe is made in the Infinity Engine. Yeah, you know, I've never played Icewind Dale. Uh, it's one of those things that I, I've thought about uh, going back into and then um, realizing that I liked Planescape Torment so much, and this feels like a swing in the opposite direction from that, uh, has always sort of turned <laughs> me away. <laughs> so uh, we'll Maybe see. Maybe 2024 someday. will be the year of our old school CRPGs. We can do Icewind Dale, Temple of Elemental Evil, all those okay. old ones. <laughs> Let's just get through Baldur's Gate 3 first. Um, but at the same time, I think it's really interesting to see that, like, you know, we've already talked about how Baldur's Gate sort of basically rekindled the CRPG genre uh, in a big way, you know, maybe alongside the Fallout games. Um, but then, you know, years later, we would see things like Pillars of Eternity coming out and um, resurrecting it even further. And, um, you know, while Bioware may have um, gone into a, a different direction, moving into things like your Mass Effects and focusing on a more action-oriented uh, way of looking at things, there are still people out there that are hungering for games like um, Baldur's Gate, and then, you know, so Pillars of Eternity comes along, and then uh, of course Divinity Original Sin and its sequel, Divinity Original Sin 2, leading of course to what we eventually are working towards here, Baldur's Gate 3, which is going to be developed by uh, Larian, the developer behind Divinity Original Sin 1 and 2. You know, I kind of wonder, like, um, I feel a lot of these old genres get redone by more indie studios, smaller shop studios, uh, to kind of recapture the feeling, the magic of older games in a market that has been kind of left behind by the larger studios. I have not played Pillars of Eternity, so I can't talk about that at all. And I think Divinity is not a indie studio. No, and Larian is, I would say, solidly double A. Like they're they're right up there, um, if not triple A, you know, in their own right. But they're it, it, they've got resources, and I think they're being as faithful as they can to the idea behind this. But they're obviously not working in the constraints of a branded D and D partnership, so it's a little different, you know. Yeah, no, I got you. I just wonder, like, I feel like this the CRPG is almost ripe for an indie revival of the genre. But I don't know if I can see how Baldur's Gate, like, I don't see how you could do a Baldur's Gate-like without having the content and the scale and the scope of it. Well, that's kind of the magic behind Baldur's Gate is how big it was and how expansive it was at the time. Um, I remember uh, listening in an interview and um, one of the primary designers realizing that they had basically 10,000 screens and... Uh, you know, of of art that was used to create all of the locations in the game, um, and realizing that that dwarfed a game that they thought was just unimaginably large and, and incomprehensible, uh, The Legend of Zelda for NES. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it just kind of puts it in perspective that, you know, as you said, part of the appeal of Baldur's Gate and its sequels is the scale. You know, this is a grand adventure. This is an epic. 
um, especially if you're talking about the thing in totality holding up, holding out across Baldur's Gate, its expansions, Baldur's Gate 2 and its expansions. It is truly an epic tale of, you know, warfdom to godhood. Even just in a smaller scope, this the first game itself, trying to recapture that focus on exploration, which is probably the biggest thing I got out of this game. Like, the the biggest personality I got of it was uh, second edition exploration, mm-hmm. which is not my three-word review, but <laughs> it would be a good substitute for it. Yeah, I would agree. That is a nice one. Um, and to that end, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Larian does interact with having that D&D partnership and, and using that. You know, it's worth mentioning that it's been an early access for a while, and I don't believe either of us have played it. Um, so we're we're talking about this blind to, you know, over a year of people actually experiencing the property. But, you know, once it launches proper in August, we will dive in. Or maybe a month after, so the bugs get fixed. Amen. <laughs> 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 and with that, uh, let, uh, let's sum up our thoughts on our journeys through the Sword Coast with a three-word review. All right, my three-word review for this game is Dated Design Difficulties. Baldur's Gate is often shortlisted for one of the best CRPGs ever created, so I was excited to dive into the 25-year-old game and see what the hype was about. Unfortunately, I did not dive too far. Looking back at the reasons why, it wasn't about the second edition D&D rule set, which I'm familiar with enough from the days of my youth. Even with that familiarity, the game never felt legible to me. It was difficult to tell why my party members were paralyzed, running away, or simply not hitting anything. Uh, When I was beaten by an enemy, which was often, to be fair, (laughs) I had trouble figuring out if I was even supposed to be there fighting that enemy or if I was just completely out of my league. I even had issues, as we mentioned, figuring out where I was supposed to go at the very beginning. It helped during these times to have a Baldur's Gate Sherpa to turn to and to offer advice, and that advice was both appreciated and helped me to appreciate the game more. Even so, certain design decisions around the pacing and signposting left me struggling to find fingerholds in the game. I left the Sword Coast much as I entered it, a level 1 rookie lost in the wilderness. <laughs> well, it's nice to be able to return the favor as a Sherpa. Um, you know, and Lord knows you've played that role for me many a time. My three-word review is Low-Level Legend. One of Baldur's Gate's most unique aspects is that it's a low-level adventure. Most of the games in the current RPG landscape catapult you immediately into world-ending implications. Baldur's Gate is content to let you finally catch a whiff of your true destiny by the end of the entire first game. This grounds the game in its setting and lets you experience it from the bottom up, and makes for some truly hilarious early encounters where you're getting absolutely destroyed by a pack of wild dogs especially if you're playing a mage. The game's D&D simulator approach to combat and storytelling remain unique and uniquely janky to this day. I have a ton of love and nostalgia for this game and totally understand why it's hard to approach for new players, but its huge open world, with the freedom to tactically approach any situation, still stands the test of time and should be experienced by anyone with an interest in RPGs, D&D, or compelling high fantasy. And with that, I want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think may enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter at pixelplaypod. For us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. 
take care and gather your party before venturing forth. I'm glad you gave it a shot. It is an interesting game, but like I said in my three word, it's not an easy, easy pill to swallow in, in a modern context. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like, I think you helped reorient me to being like, this is a game about exploration here. Um, Cause I think later on uh, the large triple A's got much more about the narrative, the uh, set piece design and the kind of like the path through things. Um, well, that, that's the thing is, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's like in modern RPGs, you can just do the main quest. There is a critical path, and if you just stick to the critical path, you'll be fine. That is not so in Baldur's Gate. Mm-hmm. It is It is so, yeah. 70% side content, right? <laughs> and then you mentioned, too, that Baldur's Gate has you start off at level 7 or something, which is more than level 1. Yeah, Baldur's Gate 2. Yeah, Baldur's Gate 2 has you starting off at yeah, I think level seven in most cases depends on your class, but um, it is yeah, you're you're definitely a seasoned adventurer at that point, um, which is a big change. <clears throat> it, it's an entirely different style of game, and I'm I'm really excited for you to check it out. I think it might resonate a bit more. Oh, I think so. I think so. Like. It was weird getting into the game too at the same time as being like. I don't know, I'm thinking um, back to the Mulhalani fight, Mulhani in the mines. Um, I'm, you know, he has the summons he does, the mobs of ads and all that that come to save him and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had my, I had three fighters in my party and then two bow people and the mage. Uh, so three, you know, one cleric amongst, amongst the fighters there. Um, but I'm like, okay, maybe it looks like there's supposed to be a choke point here. Let's try to get Minsk and the cleric to guard off the choke point so the skeletons can't get past. Um, and then have everyone else wail on the mage while he does that. He's a cleric, Um, by the way. Cleric, (laughs) spellcaster. Whack him, interrupt his spellcasting. Um, and, you know, like, I tried that strategy for probably an hour and a half trying to get this going. Um, But the two fighters would still get surrounded by, you know, between five to eight people each. It seemed like I couldn't position... Like, it seems like it wasn't like, oh, here's a tactics game where you can position them to block them off. They would still get overwhelmed by the skeletons. And then um, my people fighting the cleric could never keep him from uh, firing off the spells like they couldn't get a sufficiently high I'm hitting you kind of thing Um, and then I go online and read like how do I beat this guy and they're like oh you should do exactly what you're doing right there that's the secret and I'm like well yes uh." yes and no Um, I I have two counters to that one you had a cleric in your party yeah yes let me introduce you to my friend turn undead 
Um. <laughs> oh, I missed that entirely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it Turn Undead would have basically sent most of those skeletons uh, into a state of non-combativeness, which would have freed all of your party up to focus fire on um, Mulaney, who is, by the way, a cleric of the god Siric, I think, uh, meaning he's an evil bastard. Um, and... Uh, yeah, to your point, like he's not an easy fight. Like that is one of the the early game hurdles to get over. But um, it is much easier if you find a way to deal with those skeletons, whether it's, as you said, with a choke point, you know, putting a meat wall between all of them and the rest of your party or turning them away and then just focusing on the rest of the mobs that come in uh, as a result. Uh, it's still not an easy fight and definitely a hurdle for like a level two or three character whatever you may be it sounds like you were still one which um also probably contributed to the difficulty there (laughs) (laughs) i mean of those six hours i'm sure a good two were spent on reloads and everything no i get it It, it's it's and i'm coming at this from literally decades of um having played the game uh not consistently but at least a couple times through so that helps I think, too, part of it was in, um, like, I I talked about how I didn't know whether this fight was one I was supposed to be fighting or not. Um, I felt like there were two fights in Baldur's Gate, the ridiculously easy and the I'm reloading this at least a dozen times in order to figure out how to beat this. And I felt like there weren't the sort of things in between where I could validate the tactics I was using. Mm. Um, Like the choke point sort of thing with the meat shield. I was just kind of guessing that maybe that would work. Like... Mm. If they had taught that earlier at some point in the game, then I'd be like, okay, the game is telling me that this is something I, that's available. Um, as opposed to like, maybe this works here? I don't know. I feel like if I could have asked the DM a couple of questions, <laughs> it would have smoothed things over. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Um, there is, um, you know, given this is like a D&D style campaign, usually you are able to do that. Um, That is not the case when the DM is a computer. Um, But luckily, we have the internet at our disposal. And, you know, there are resources out there for that. It sounds like some of them, and I always find this infuriating, especially with like Souls-like games. Like, how do I get past this fucking terrible boss? And it turns out they're like, oh, just use this weapon. It's like, one, I don't have that weapon. Two, I haven't leveled it. Three, I'm not spec for it. Like, fuck you. And... And, you know, advice is only as good as it is applicable. So I totally see where you're coming from. And then I think part of it, too, like, I was still two-thirds level one at that point. Um, And, like, the uh, I mentioned that, you know, the party experience. I'm like, yeah, guys, you can come along. Why not? Uh, But it turns (laughs) out those guys were like vampires sucking my experience away from me. And I didn't even want them in the first place. I'm like, why not? (laughs) <laughs> that's funny um you know Zan and Monteron as vampires is an interesting uh idea headcanon but, yeah that's, that's a headcanon right there they kind of are vamp- vampiric in nature but um I don't know I uh there's a lot of really good party members out there too that uh well some of them you didn't have the opportunity to run across others you did um I could probably could have steered you into the direction of a couple of more competent uh people to bring along but yeah oh you did you did you had the good <laughs> Uh, you had a really nice advice document. 
um which was which, it was nice like it was brief but it was hopefully helpful <laughs> very helpful Baldur's Gate 2 is the whole goal of doing this series of podcasts hmm. um are they some big like that was another reason why I ducked out earlier on Baldur's Gate was I'm like, this is the precursor for the, this is the appetizer here. I want to get in the mood. I want to get the feeling of things, get the history of it, see how it improves, um, which I'll have an interesting experience or a different, interesting perspective for getting into Baldur's Gate 2. Um, yeah. But I I got what I wanted out of Baldur's Gate 1. I would recommend watching like a story recap for the rest of Baldur's Gate 1 because um there are interesting beats in that plot. Um, I wouldn't say it's like strong throughout. Um, I think the like second and third acts are maybe not as strong from like a, I guess just a story point perspective. Like it's, it's hilarious how fast they roll out the idea of, oh, and by the way, you're a ball spawn. And also, by the way, Saravak is one too. And he's trying to kill you because there can only be one. It's like a Highlander yeah. situation. Um, so um, that becomes very important later on. But yeah, to that end, I uh, I'm glad we got to do this one, even if it uh, maybe didn't fully jive. It's a it's a game that has an important place in my uh, personal pantheon, so I'm I'm glad to one have revisited and two having to talk about it with you. Mm-hmm. No, I'm very glad we did this one too. Even aside from you know like warming up for Baldur's Gate two, because uh, like I like I mentioned, this one was like a top crpgs sort of thing so i ended up not liking it but i have an intelligent opinion as to why now <laughs> so baldur's gate had its share of taverns and i feel like the baldur's gate taverns had a very uh, a very specific personality to them, and that personality is you get stabbed a bunch. <laughs> uh, like, I don't think I've seen more assassins in taverns than I have in Baldur's Gate. Uh, so I'm just curious, like, what are your favorite video game taverns and why? Oh, man. I gotta think about this for a minute. Video game taverns. So I need to think about, like, my favorite RPGs first and then think about the taverns within them. I just quickly Googled um, Baldur's Gate Taverns, and I, I'm seeing a list here, and there's there's some great names here. The Splurging Sturgeon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, <clears throat> the Blushing Mermaid. I think one of my favorite taverns in video games would be Grillbees in Undertale. Fantastic music. Fantastic I can hear, music. I can hear it right now. <laughs> so, like... In Baldur's Gate, in Dungeons and Dragons in particular, and thus in Baldur's Gate, uh, the tavern is where you go to get information um, to lead things off. And that's why they stab you a lot in the taverns in Baldur's Gate, because it's like, oh, player arrives in the city, doesn't know what to do. Where do you go? The tavern, of course. (laughs) And you pick up some new quests there, some new party members, uh, some new combats, what have you. Um... But, you know, I've never gone to a tavern for a quest before in real life. No, usually Um, I'm trying to escape the quests. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But it's like this kind of like kind of escape sort of thing. And I remember in Undertale, you know, the game about how the monsters are real people, too. Um, You're the monsters that you were fighting are there in the tavern. They're like 
Yeah, you know, just kicking back after a long day of work, monstering out there in the fields. Uh, and it kind of like was the big tone shift for me where you see that the game isn't trying to present the monsters uh, as monsters, but as like, hey, it's a job. Someone's got to do it kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good point. And to that end, I want to bring up one more that just immediately popped to mind, which is Seventh Heaven from Final Fantasy VII, the bar that Tifa works at and uh, is owned by um, Barrett, I think. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's a hideout, obviously, which is obviously the best thing for a bar to be. Um, and <clears throat> at the same time, it's a revolutionary hangout, which is even more badass. Uh, but it also which just is sort also of... a thing bars and taverns <laughs> have been before. Exactly. Yeah, it's true. And I think like that speaks truth to one, the world, but also like um, something that I don't know that we'd necessarily seen in Final Fantasy before, which you can say about so much of Final Fantasy seven. But I really enjoyed the vibe there. And even in uh, the Final Fantasy seven remake, which is more recent, like it it got even better. Um, So seventh heaven gets another shout out for me as a solid video game bar. Baldur's Gate. Oh my. I killed a man in Baldur's Gate just to watch him die. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> no, I think I, it's pretty pretty uh, certain in this one. <laughs> in this case. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs>